Hello everyone, welcome to History and Mystery. I am your host, Ariel. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. If you're new here, welcome to the show. Today, I will be discussing one of the most haunted houses in America. Well, that's what they claim anyway. That would be the Myrtle Plantation located in Louisiana. Now, normally I would discuss my Patreon page and blah, 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 but today I'm not going to do that because it feels very inappropriate considering that we've got a global pandemic going on in the world and a lot of people have just lost their jobs. I do have a Patreon page, but I'm not really going to talk about it other than that. If you want to look it up, you can do that on your own accord, but I'm not going to be asking for anything at the moment. I'm not going to talk about it too much because I think that a lot of people want to escape the fact that we're on lockdown right now. And I don't blame you because I have kind of been milling around the house for a couple of days in shock because I work at a school, for those of you who don't know, and we had to make these homework packets in a rush and get them all out to our families. And then it was like over after that. So I've been home all week and it's been a little rough. You know, you're in quarantine. You're not supposed to go anywhere. Um, Where I live, my county has completely like shut everything down. So there's that. They don't want anyone even going outside to do much except for walk around the neighborhood. And I went for a nice walk the other day in our state park, which is not very far away from my house. And that was nice. Um, But it was very eerie because there wasn't a lot of people around. And the people that were there, you know, you have to keep your distance, right? Social distancing and all that. So it was very weird. And um, yeah, so, you know, we're just all trying, in my family anyway, we're just trying to hang in there and do what we can. I cleaned a ton, but that's just my therapy. Knowing that everything was clean just helped me out a lot. So I took like two full days and just scrubbed down everything in the house. And now that that's done, I did this podcast and for me, my podcast is my also my therapy. So I hope that you guys can enjoy this episode. And yeah, I mean, all I can say is just, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to anyone that's being affected by this, which is pretty much everyone. Um, I just, all I can say is follow what the CDC says, stay inside, wash your hands, follow the rules of your area and social distance as much as possible because the faster we get to social distancing, the faster we can get this all over with and not overwhelm our healthcare system. So with that in mind, wash your hands, don't touch your face. And now it's time to sit down, relax and come with me as we discuss a monster in Louisiana and a very haunted plantation. This week's Monster of the Week is the Honey Island Swamp Monster. This monster is deep in Louisiana folklore. The Honey Island Swamp Monster also goes by another name, Louisiana Wookie. This monster was first spotted by a retired air traffic controlman named Harlan Ford. He was out hunting in 1963 and spotted a strange bipedal creature. It was seven feet tall, had long gray matted hair, and yellowish red eyes. It also had a bad smell that usually accompanies a Bigfoot sighting. The creature also had three large webbed toes instead of the typical Bigfoot footprint that you'd think of today. Once spotted, the creature ran off, but Harlan had a few friends come back with him to look for it. They then took plaster castings of strange-looking footprints that they found along the bank, and they went to the media with them. After Harlan passed away, they found a Super 8 film among his belongings that appears to show the creature. 
Harlan became obsessed with proving what he saw was real, and he spent the rest of his life looking for the creature within the swamp. He passed away in 1980. The plaster castings of these strange footprints are too large to be an alligator. Some think that the creature is a form of wild man that is still hiding out in the swamps. Others think it's a Bigfoot creature that evolved to have webbed feet so that he was able to navigate in the swamps. Others even go so far as to say that it is a hybrid of a gorilla and an alligator. The gorilla came from a train wreck that happened a long time ago with circus animals that got out and resulted in this monster. I personally want to go with the Bigfoot that evolved into web feet theory. This story has been documented many times in books and TV shows. His granddaughter, Donna Holyfield, runs a website devoted to keep the legend of the honey swamp monster alive. She has photos of the plaster castings, eyewitness accounts on her webpage. She also has been on documentary films called The Legend of the Honey Swamp Monster, Mysteries at the Museum, Fact or Faked, and Swamp People. She recounts the evidence her father had found and his story. She is also the author of the Honey Island Swamp Monster documentations. Have any of you heard of this monster? Let me know if you have on my Instagram and my Facebook pages. I'm really interested to know more about this monster of the week. Myrtle's Plantation is found in St. Francisville, Louisiana. This historic plantation is considered one of America's most haunted homes. In this day and age, it is a bed and breakfast with rooms to stay in as well as cottages to rent out. It has a restaurant and they allow special events to be held there. They hold historical tours as well as haunted tours. They definitely embrace the ghosts at the Myrtle's Plantation. You can see that right from their website page. It might be a tourist destination now, but back in the 1700s, it had a much different purpose. Along with many alleged murders and strange deaths that have happened on the property, let's go explore the 200-year-old history of this plantation, as well as the ghosts that still might be hanging around. The plantation was built in 1796 by General David Bradford. General Bradford was born in 1782 in Maryland. When Bradford grew up, he went off to law school to become an extremely successful lawyer. Bradford was the sixth attorney to be admitted to the Washington County Bar Association. He settled down in Washington, Pennsylvania, and he gained quite a reputation for having an extremely successful practice. In 1783, he was appointed as Deputy Attorney General for Washington County. Bradford had also important family ties in the community as well. One of his sisters, Angus, married a local attorney named John McDowell. His other sister, Jane, also married a lawyer named Colonel James Allison. So I think you can all see that this guy was very important and very well set in the way of money. He became a trustee for Washington College. Today, the name of the college is Washington and Jefferson College. He was on the building committee and built the McMillan Hall. And today, the McMillan Hall is one of the oldest educational buildings in the United States. It is also on the National Registry of Historic Places. Yes, Bradford had everything going right for him until he decided to get into politics. 
1791, he began to become involved in protests over a whiskey tax brought on by the federal government. It was the first tax to be imposed on a domestic product after the Revolutionary War. This started a chain of events known as the Whiskey Rebellion. He also gained a nickname, Whiskey Dave. Bradford became one of the main figures in the Whiskey Rebellion. As you could imagine, farmers who had been distilling their own whiskey for years got really angry that they were now expected to pay a tax for making and selling it. So it caused lots of conflicts. In some cases were flat-out refusals from farmers to pay the tax, and some turned violent. In western Pennsylvania, protests began to spring up in groups, and some turned extremely violent. This all came to a boiling point in July of 1794, when President George Washington had had enough of the refusal to pay the tax. He sent a U.S. Marshal to serve the rights to the distillers who had refused to pay the tax. Angry protesters spread the word, and 500 armed men attacked the home of the tax inspector, General John Neville. George Washington had to respond by sending 13,000 militiamen to push back the protests and break it up and to protect Marshall. By the time the militiamen showed up, the group of 500 men had scattered, and in the end, only 20 men were arrested. One of the men on the list of arrestees was Bradford, for he was one of the main figures of the whiskey protests. There is an epic legend to his escape written in a book entitled David Bradford and His House, written by Harriet Branton. It tells of a harrowing escape that includes Bradford hearing the militia group approaching to his house and him jumping out of a window, landing on his waiting horse to ride off into the night. It also tells of a shootout that happened along the riverbanks, and he barely made it out alive. The real story is much less exciting. After the mob dispersed, he decided to flee for he knew that they put a $500 reward out for his arrest. So he left his wife, Elizabeth, and his children for a short time and boarded the coal barge down the Ohio River until he got to the bayou in what was then a Spanish colony found in Spanish West Florida, modern-day Louisiana. He was able to get a land grant of 650 acres from the Spanish. He built the main house of the plantation first, and it was completed in 1797. Local lore says this property was built on an ancient burial ground, but it is hard to prove that. He named the property Laurel Grove and switched from being a wealthy lawyer to becoming a wealthy planter. I looked everywhere for the official crop that they grew on the plantation, and from what I could find, I think it was a sugar plantation as a whole, but if anyone knows more information about that, please let me know because I hate being wrong, but I looked everywhere and could not find it. I also could not find how many people they enslaved, and I hate saying that word, and I have such a hard time talking about this because I think that slavery is a million times wrong, and It's just wrong on so many levels, but I do have to talk about it to get through the history of this place. But from what I researched, it seemed like a lot of those plantations in the same area had around 50 to 100 slaves from what I could tell. Anyway, I hate talking about it, but I have to for the history's sake. In March of 1799, all the people who were involved in the Whiskey Rebellion were pardoned by President Adams. After his pardon, Bradford moved his wife and children to come live with him in Laurel Grove. After Bradford passed away in 1808, Elizabeth ran the plantation on her own until 1817. She then gave the management of the plantation to her daughter's husband, Clark Woodruff. Elizabeth's daughter's name was Sarah. Sarah and Clark had three children together, and they lived in the home until 1824. Sarah passed away as well as two of her three children due to yellow fever. After Elizabeth Bradford passed away in 1831, Clark Woodruff moved out of the house and moved to Covington, Louisiana, leaving a caretaker to run the property in his absence. 
Woodruff ended up selling the property along with his slaves to Ruffin Gray Sterling. What a name. Sterling and his wife, Mary, had the whole house remodeled. They doubled the size of the original house, added imported furniture from Europe. Sterling also added a 125-foot-long veranda that has beautiful ironwork that just screams New Orleans. They put up a 300-pound Backhart crystal chandelier, built a hand-painted stained glass entryway that it also etched with that French cross to keep evil out. He also added a matching ladies and gentlemen's parlor. They have Caraca marble mantles in each room. He also added a new dining room and gaming room. Just think of all that rich Annabella money and the atmosphere that was dripping out of the house at this time. The Sterlings also changed the name to the Myrtles Plantation. They named it after the crepe myrtle trees that grew on the property. Then Ruffin passed away in 1854, and he left the plantation to Mary. Once the Civil War passed, it left the house robbed of everything inside except for the chandelier and the family in financial ruins due to having so much money tied up with Confederate currency. The house also had more deaths. In 1865, Mary hired a lawyer named Drew Winter to help her manage the plantation. Winter had married Sterling's daughter, Sarah. They had six children, but they lost one of their daughters to typhoid fever. Her name was Kate, and she was only three years old. Winter was forced to sell the property in 1868, but he was able to buy it back only two years later. He didn't get to live in it much longer after he bought it back, however, for he was shot and killed on the front porch of his house. He allegedly crawled back inside, pulled himself up the stairs, and collapsed in his wife Sarah's arms on the 17th step. No one ever found out who his killer was, but some speculate it was a man named E.S. Weber. After the death of her husband, Sarah went on to live in the property with her mother and her siblings until she passed away in the home in 1878. After Sarah, Mary Cobb Sterling, passed away in 1880, she left the property to her son, Stephen, but by this time, the plantation was beginning to fall apart and was in heavy debt. He was forced to sell to a man named Oren D. Brooks in 1886, who then had to turn around and sell it in 1889. The property had changed hands many times until it was purchased by Harrison Millet Williams in 1891. Williams decided to divide the land amongst his heirs. By the 1950s, only the house was sold a family with the last name of Munson. They were the first ones to openly share the strange things that happened inside the house. This began many ghost stories and local legends about the house and the property. The Myrtles Plantation had gone through so many owners before finally being purchased by James Myers and Francis Kerman Myers. They opened the house as a bed and breakfast. It did not take long for them to start seeing weird things happen on this property. Francis wrote a book about the plantation, calling it the most haunted house in America. The current owners are John and Tessa Moss. They still run it as a bed and breakfast. The Myrtles Plantation is on the National Registry of Historic Places. The rooms are all named after important people to the plantation's past, like the Judge Clark Woodruff Suite, the General David Bradford Suite, William Winter's Room, John Lark Room, Ruffin Sterling Room, Franny Williams Room, the Caretaker's Quarters, the Cocoa House, the Cottages, and the Garden Rooms. They host a daily mystery tour as well as an evening mystery tour and a private mystery tour as well. And the prices are actually really good. Only $15 for the daily 45-minute tour and $15 for the nighttime one. And that one is about an hour. 
They also have a private mystery tour, and I don't know what that one entails or what makes it different from the others because it doesn't really say on their website other than it just being a private tour. Sadly, there was a fire in the general store back in 2014, but luckily it did not reach the main building, and they have since fixed it and it has it back up and running. They also have a restaurant called Restaurant 1796. But this location is most famous for its ghosts. Even shows like Ghost Hunters and Ghost Adventures have been to this site, as well as many other paranormal investigators. Is this house the most haunted house in the United States? Listen to these stories and see what you think. Plantation has many ghost stories. Many have turned to legend, some are fact. I am going to go through the ghost stories, starting with the urban legends. First off, the plantation is supposedly on an ancient Tunica Indian burial ground. Now, there is no proof that it was one, but there is also no proof that it wasn't. And whether true or not, it does add to the spookiness of the place. Next, we have the urban legend of Chloe. Chloe was a house slave for Clark Woodruff. He became infatuated with Chloe and made her his mistress. Poor Chloe had no choice but to go along with what she was told to do. She started to become worried that Woodruff's wife would one day find out that Clark and her were having an affair, so she began listening to their conversations. She got caught listening at the door one night, and Clark became enraged to find her spying. As punishment, he had one of her ears cut off. After this, she was forced to wear a turban to cover her disfigured ear. She got really angry and wanted to get revenge, so she baked a birthday cake for one of the child's birthdays, and she added oleander leaves to the cake batter. For those of you who don't know, oleander leaves are extremely poisonous, so if you have them in your yard, you might want to get rid of them if you have a puppy or a kid. After the family ate the cake, they all became ill, and this led to the death of Woodruff's wife and her two children. After their deaths, the other slaves found out what Chloe had done, and out of fear of retribution from Clark, they hung her from a tree on the property. And now it is said that you can still see Chloe's angry spirit wandering the grounds at night. Makes for a great spooky story, right? Only trouble with this awesome ghost story is that remember what I told you in the history part about Woodruff's wife and his two children? They passed away from yellow fever, not poison. There is also no evidence that they even died in the home, although I can't see where else they would have been uh, when they all died, but I don't know. There is also no proof of a slave named Chloe ever even existing. So how did this story get started? Well, I couldn't find out how long the story had actually been around and how long it had been told and where it originally started, but there was a photographer who went out to take pictures of the house in 1992, and because of the insurance policy required photos of the original structures to be taken, he went out to take them. So in one of the photographs between a smaller building and the main house, down an alleyway, you can see a shadow figure of a woman that looks like she is dressed in the slave attire, you know, like dressed as a slave girl, and she had a turban on her head. I don't know if the Chloe story came out of that after they discovered that in the picture, or if the story was already around and they used the picture to 
quote, quote, confirm the legend. You should definitely check out the photo, though. It's really famous, and it is really creepy. The creepiest thing to me is that you can see through the apparition. The photo was also used in a documentary on National Geographic's Explorer, and they suggested that they used it as a postcard and sell it in the general store. So, it is now a super famous picture, and it is used as photo evidence of ghosts existing to this very day. It now has the name the infamous Chloe postcard or the infamous Chloe photo. Now, just because the story might be made up, it does not mean that the ghost is. Other than the photo of this spirit, many people have claimed to see and interact with a slave girl with a turban on her head. Some say that she walks around the property and on the inside of the house before vanishing. Whether her name is Chloe or not is yet to be determined. There is another legend that says a slave girl from a neighboring plantation named Cleo, who was practicing voodoo, was hung on the property. The story goes that when the Winters owned the property, one of his daughters was dying of typhoid fever. In desperation, they called upon the slave to perform rituals to save her life. They did not work, and the girl succumbed to the illness. Out of anger, Mr. Winters had the slave girl hung because she could not save his little girl. Now, this story does have a little more truth to it because there is documented proof of a little girl age three dying of typhoid fever in the family Bible. It does not, however, discuss any voodoo rituals and there's no documents to be found of a slave girl named Cleo. Cleo sounds really close to the name Chloe to me and they both kind of have the same pattern of storytelling. People die and in retaliation, a slave girl is hung on the property. Now, because there is no proof either way, it does not mean that it did or didn't happen. We have no proof, but regardless, it is a story that was passed down through the generations. I also couldn't find any records of the slaves that were kept on the property. As I mentioned before, as far as I can tell, they were trying to kind of skip over the slavery part altogether, except for the ghost part. Um, slaves in the South were obviously treated less than human. They had no rights. They were forced to do anything their masters told them. It would not surprise me if a lot of angry spirits still remained on the property. That is no way to treat anyone and it makes me sick to my stomach to even think about the disgusting things that happen to people on those plantations. Personally, if it was me, I would haunt the living heck out of anyone left on that property, but that's just me. Anyway, moving on from that little rant. <laughs> Many people have felt a strong presence on the grounds. Some feel as if they are being followed while walking down pathways, and people have reported hearing footsteps behind them only to turn around to find that there's no one there. Strange mists have also been seen at random, and cold spots and voices have been heard all over the property. Legends has it that there have been 10 murders on the property, but there is only the record of one, and that is the murder of William Winter. If the story is true about Cleo being hung for not saving his daughter's life, then this would have been about a year after that. Winter was inside his home and he heard someone knock on the door. He went up to it, opened the door, and was instantly shot in the chest with a shotgun. He then crawled up the steps to try to get to his wife, but he then collapsed on the 17th step and he died in his wife Sarah's arms. Now, it is said that you can hear footsteps and dragging sounds go up the stairs and stop on the 17th step. Seeing children playing around the home and on the property is a common occurrence. Some have claimed to hear children talking and laughing to look around to see no children around the area. One of the more creepy stories comes from the TV show Ghost Adventures, season eight, episode four. In the beginning of the episode, the crew were interviewing people who work on the property. 
and they went to talk with this really nice lady named Miss Hester Ebby. She is the director of tours and has been for 20 years on the property. She told a story of a man and a woman getting out of their car, and when they entered the house, Miss Hester complimented the couple on having such a cute daughter. They looked at her surprised and said that they have no children. She went outside to look around for the little girl, but didn't see anything. She turned to go back inside when she heard a little girl say, hello there. She looked around and didn't see anything. Then she went to go back inside the house and then heard a voice say, hello there, this time more persistent, almost as if she was annoyed that Miss Esther could not see her anymore. There is a ghost of a Confederate soldier that is seen out by the pond. He seems to be more of a residual haunting. When he is seen, he just kind of stands there and looks over the pond and then vanishes. Moving objects are reported throughout the property. Ghost Hunters Season 2, Episode 1 caught a lamp slowly being pushed across the table by unseen forces. While they were out in the woods of the property, they caught what looked like a head and shoulders of a person passing extremely close to the thermal imaging camera. Only catch, you could see through it, so you know it wasn't an actual person. Creepy. In the Ghost Adventures episode, the property's caretaker and historian Mark Leonard explained a very scary experience he had in one of the rooms inside the house. He claimed that he was laying on one of the beds reading a book when all of a sudden the bed started to shake violently. He thought they were having an earthquake and he looked up to the hanging lamp in the middle of the ceiling to see that it was not moving at all. He ran from the room and it scared him a lot. You can see scarring on the wood floor around the bed legs, apparently from this occurrence. Ghosts love to show up in photographs on this property. There are lots of people who claim to have taken a photo with nothing strange in the background. And then when they go to look at their photos later, they find all kinds of ghosts in the photos. There is a lady in white who likes to peek out of the upstairs window, as well as child ghosts who look out at you through the windows. There is a really creepy looking image that looks to be like, I want to say too good to be real, but they claim it is. The photo is of a guest posing for a picture on the front porch and behind her in the big window, you see a transparent little girl in period clothing. They have it on their website, myrtlesplantation.com. I recommend everyone go look at it. And on that web same page, they have the infamous Chloe photo as well. Very creepy. If it's real, oh my gosh, it gives me just chills. You should go check it out. There is also said to be a haunted mirror. This mirror is not original to the house, but lots of strange things have been seen and captured in photographs of the mirror. It is found right in the entryway of the home. The mirror is stained a little bit, and I bring that up because there is this thing called matrixing. And the definition for matrixing that I found on Google is, quote, the way the human brain sometimes fools the eyes and ears into seeing and hearing something in a place where you would least expect them. Matrixing occurs because our brains pick out random patterns and then arranges them so that they are familiar, end quote. So that could be one of the explanations for seeing things in the mirror. That being said, there is one photo that really creeps me out. In this picture, you can plainly see a woman with snow white hair in a black period dress standing and staring into the mirror. It is extremely spooky. Also, many people have claimed to see children playing on the staircase behind them while they're looking at the mirror. So then they turn around and there's no one there at all. So that one's full on movement in the mirror and I don't think Matrixing could explain that one away. But the thing is, the mirror is not originally to the home. So 
I have so many questions about the mirror. Where did it come from? Was it in another house before then? Could the mirror have brought extra spirits to the mansion through its, like, through the mirror itself? I have questions and I really, really want answers about the mirror. I'm surprised no one has looked into the mirror. Last but certainly not least, there are stories of hearing footsteps on the wraparound porch, swishing of hoop skirts on the wood floors. Out near the old slave quarters, EVPs have been captured as well as shadow figures darting between the trees and the cabins. This whole spot just seems really active, and I could totally understand why it would be the most active place around. I don't know if this place is haunted or not, but I can definitely see that there might be some angry spirits around the property, and also with such sadness as children's deaths, murder, and of course the way the slaves were treated, it must have made a really big imprint of energy on the property. I know that someday I'm going to go stay at this place and see for myself if anything spooky happens. I hope you all enjoyed this spooky episode of the history and haunts found at the Myrtle Plantation, where I found most of my information was Wikipedia, but also with help from the MyrtlesPlantation.com. I will be back soon with another episode. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe, wash your hands, try your best to stay sane while you're in lockdown, and we will all get through this together. Please add me on Facebook at History and Mystery, Instagram at History underscore Mystery 13, Twitter at History and Mystery, and also, of course, please um, join our group page so we can all do mental health check-ins during this horrible time or just make each other laugh a little bit. That is History and Mystery group page. All right, until next time, my spooky people. Bye!